0: Well, it's great that we're able to continue in uh, this voyage of discovery that we've uh, sort of embarked on as we go into this new realm of existence that Paul has been laying out for us, especially as we come on into the home straight of this uh, little letter. And this new realm can be summed up in two words, can't it? In Christ. It's so total. It is all consuming. It doesn't just define our reality, but also our identity being in Christ. Remember, Christ is your life. It doesn't get more total than that. And as we looked on last week, we were reminded that we've had this full-body transplant. He is our past, he is our present, he is our future, and an entire reorientation of our self-perception has taken place instead of what we think of who we are in Christ, in whom we have died. He is now the person that we identify with, which means we now seek him and him only and the things that are above with with him, the, the things that he loves, And so I wonder how we've been getting on as we've been working this through in our weeks. Who were we this Monday morning, last week? Who were we on Thursday evening? How were you when you were confronted with that earthly thing? What did it look like for you to put on the new self? And where might we have failed? And if we have, were we reminded that we're allowed to come back to Christ again, not in shame, but in repentance, as he reminds us that there is no guilt. Rather that all my sin is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more and I continue on in him again, in him, in Christ. That is the new realm of living in abundance and growth. And asking those kind of questions, is us living that way in Christ? And in doing so, says Paul, it's like being a tree, a tree in the the Amazon rainforest, full of verdancy and abundancy and rootedness and health and vitality and greenness and life. Paul is teaching a spirituality whereby heaven is breaking into my earthly reality and transforming my experience from the inside of my person out. And so do we feel this this way of living? Do we feel the pull of this kind of living? Do we feel the persuasion of Paul's writing here in the spirit towards what real Christianity looks like? Over and above the pull of the spiritual salesman. That's what Paul is doing here. Remember, he wants us to be absolutely sold on the fact that we are the real deal, that we already have everything that we need for godliness and deep heavenly on earth Christian experience. We need nothing else. And as we saw last week, this new realm in which we exist wonderfully is not a purely individual state of affairs. It's not about me and my relationship with God. It is a corporate state of affairs. It's a family thing. It's about us and our relationship with God and with each other. Verse 11 of chapter 3 that we've just read. Here in Christ there is no Greek or Jew. There are no human designations in the real term anymore. No, no, No divisions between us in that sense. For Christ is all and is in all. This new boundaryless existence is real and possible. We don't lose Um, Our our identity markers as who I am as a dad, all the things I do, those are things to be celebrated in. Rather, they they, they don't conform me anymore. I am now at one with my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Because Christ is who we are as we gather, gather together as one saved body in him. However, that left us with a question, didn't it? And that is, how should all of this knowledge shape our thinking and our practice in everyday life. We've looked at that a little bit, especially last week. But where Paul goes to, especially in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 3, answers a lot of what this looks like and how we live. Because I think we see here for the first time the two foundations or two pillars, if you like, of corporate Christian spirituality. These two pillars are found in the two main commands of verses 15 and 16 this morning. There are three commands in the passage that we're going to look at, at, but I want to draw especially on the first two. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule, and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell. And the question we want to ask this morning, as good handlers of God's word, is why do these two commands come up In verses 15 and 16 on the back of everything that has just been said. Because everything else in this chapter makes sense as an integral argument, doesn't it? Um, Go back through chapter 3 with me if you've got it open. This is who you are, verses 1 to 4 therefore put off what is earthly verses 5 to 11 so that you can put on what is heavenly verses 12 to 13 and it all finishes nicely in verse 14 and above all says Paul to wrap up to bring this all to a climax put on love which makes sense of everything which binds everything together in perfect harmony as you you exist in this new boundaryless heavenly uh, god on earth community it's a perfect end to a well-built and powerful train of thought but Paul doesn't finish there. He continues. He continues by finishing properly with these two commands. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule and let the word of Christ dwell. Now, what is going on here? How do they tie into each other? They sound like they should go together. But also, how do they tie in with what has already been said? Well, as we'll see, what Paul is doing here is, is bringing to the the, the weight of the theology that we've been looking at to bear fully on the corporate life of the church in Colossae and for us here today. Because these verses have the the essence of, of practically speaking the corporate Christian living out between us. Paul is giving us here what it means about how we live together in Christ and what we need to do that. And so it starts point 1 of 3 this morning let the peace of christ rule in your hearts now the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called as one body and be thankful now what is the peace of christ Well, it's already been earmarked for us in this very letter, and it's good to do a big recap of all this, because this is really where we see all the letter drawing uh, together. It comes up first in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. If you've got Bibles, feel free to to flick back there, scan it with me. Verses 15 to 20 of, of, of chapter 1, they tell us this hymn of praise, if you remember, as to who Jesus is. It's about Christ's preeminence in creation in the universe and in the world. And the climax of that is verses 19 and 20. For in Christ, Says Paul, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, this peace that Paul is reminding the Colossians of is a peace that is achieved by Jesus dying on the cross. It's a piece that achieves the parallel idea in verse 20 of the, of the reconciliation of all things, bringing things into peace with other things. There's a piece that, that speaks of a sense of all things being brought together and united. And Paul says that as Jesus dies on the cross, that's what he's saying in chapter 1, he made that reconciliation possible between, of all people, God and man. And because that is possible, so reconciliation is brought between man and man, man and woman, woman and woman, all of humanity. And it will find its completion fully in the new creation when Jesus comes back. But, says Paul, this peace is not just a spiritual reality that will become true for us when Jesus returns. He says here that it can be enjoyed in the church now. Now. Chapter 3, verse 15, let this peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. You see, this objective reality made possible through the death of Jesus Christ is now to rule in our hearts. And when he uses the word rule, he he, he kind of means uh, like uh, um, someone who is refereeing or someone who is umpiring you. That's the thing that should rule you. Let it go right to the core of who you are. Your heart is the heart of your being, your person. Well, let this reconciliatory peace of Christ be in charge of you. May it be riven all the way through your life. A bit like a stick of rock with, with Blackpool seared right down through the stick. You cut it any any point, and there it is. So too in Christ, with Christ's peace that He has won for mankind. If someone were to break you open, this rule of this reconciliatory peace between you and your fellow humans and believers in community with you, between you and your God, it should always be seen, always be evident. The heart is the control center of the person in the Bible. And so everything you do and think and say is managed and refereed, if you like, by this piece. It, it determines what is right and wrong, what's in and what's out. Or to use the language of Colossians, what is put on and what is put off. You see, the false spirituality that the Colossians were being sold at the end of chapter 2 is, is inherently divisive, isn't it? Again and again, Paul uses the word disqualify. These spiritual salesmen were going around and saying things like, Oh, you haven't had that vision? Oh, that's that's interesting. I suppose if you're happy with that, that's that's great. But, but but we're much more involved spiritually than that. I'm surprised you wouldn't want what we have. You must be a very different kind of Christian to us. In fact, if you if you were a Christian, I think you'd want to be with us, but who am I? You see, the Colossian false teaching tears people apart. More painfully, it tears God's people apart. Even more painfully than that, it cuts people off from the head, which is Christ. The Colossians' false spirituality, sold at a price by these spiritual salesmen, inherently divides. It is painfully destructive. And Paul says throughout this book and concentrated on these few verses Christian, that cannot be so. Whatever is at the heart of your spirituality and your spiritual practice, if you are in Christ, then it must be governed by and ruled over and characterised by the peace of Christ. And what does that look like? Well, have you ever had an experience of Christian life which has been personally edifying, for example, and upbuilding or deeply encouraging? How do you bring that to bear On the rest of the church family? Do you do it in a way that is peace-loving, that encourages that other person at the right time, that draws them into you and into the wider church family as you seek to love them deeply? Or do you talk about that experience in a way that is disqualifying? How do you bring your gifts and talents to bear on the church family? Do you use them sacrificially and peace-loving? Always serving others and allowing those gifts to be used freely in a way when, when, when people need them and, and that brings people together. Or do you use them in a way that disqualifies people? In a way that takes people hostage as you withdraw your gifts or talents. I've been in a, a number of churches that, I, that, that I've been in and I've heard of where people sort of withdraw their gifts and their talents as if they're on strike because they've been slighted by someone in the church or because they, they want to hear something um, different or, or, or they want something from the leadership team in a particular way. It's almost as if they're weaponizing their talents, something that the church desperately needs, but, but they, they won't give it over. That is not letting the peace of Christ rule in those moments. Or do you feel perhaps that you're hard done by, by others in the church? How do you respond to that? Letting the peace of Christ rule. How do you, chapter 13, bear with each other, uh, 3 verse 13, in love in those situations? How do you approach people lovingly or graciously? Do you do it in a way that is divisive? Are you someone who has done things to others that have wronged them? How have you responded in those situations? In a way where the peace of Christ is ruling, where you seek reconciliation and forgiveness, repenting, rather than letting the thing burn away between you. Old Paul says, it's like we now have a new leader, a new captain of the bridge, a new referee, a new different kind of conscience that now decides rightly how we should conduct ourselves with each other. And it is this peace of Christ which rules in our hearts. And as you know, allowing the peace of Christ to rule in, in real terms every day is really hard. I did a research project a number of years ago, HTC, on Bonhoeffer. He's somewhat of a a hero of mine. And and I looked at his theology on the church during the height of the Nazi regime. And he said many remarkable things. And this is one of the things that he said. He said, "I'm, I'm not so worried about what is going on outside of the church. Remember the sort of situation that he's speaking to. He said, I'm more worried about what is going on in the heart of the church between people. And then he says this. He says, people love the idea of community. We love the idea of community much more than we really love the experience of it. And he's right. We sort of know what that means. I love the idea of 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 the peace of Christ ruling among us. Who who wouldn't? However, I'm not so keen necessarily as to what that looks like practically. I don't like the idea of having to seek forgiveness when I've messed up in the church family or having to deal with being wronged myself. I don't like the thought of having to take the strain of some of the work in the church at points when I don't seem to be recognized or praised for it. I don't like the idea of having to always put other people's interests before my own. It's just hard. But that is what it looks like to let the peace of Christ rule among us corporately in our hearts. That is the embodiment of what putting on Christ looks like. This is the full outworking of what it means to seek the things that are above. This is what it really means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Let the peace of Christ rule, which is the heart of corporate Christian living as heaven breaks in to our Christian corporate experience. The Paul moves on. Secondly, he says, so then let the word of Christ dwell. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, what is it? the word of Christ that we want to dwell in us. Where do we see this elsewhere in Colossians? Well, we see it first mentioned again in chapter 1, verse 15. This is the word of truth. The gospel which has come to you, says Paul, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. It was the gospel that was pointing towards the hope that is being stored up in heaven for us, which we know now is represented in Christ when he will one day appear. It is this word of truth who introduced the Colossian church to the grace of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, we see it in chapter 1 verses 25 to 26. Here it's written as the word of God. The word that was the heartbeat of Paul's personal ministry. The word of God with which he wanted to make known this mystery. Which he goes on to say, is Christ in you? the word of God characterized by the message of Jesus Christ. So when we get to chapter 3, verse 16, and we read the word of Christ, we're meant to be thinking all of those things. We're meant to be thinking word of truth, word of God, the sum total of which is Jesus Christ himself. Which for us here today, of course, is is the Bible, all of it. The message of which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. That, says Paul, is what, should dwell with you and among you in your godly living, in your glory-giving community together as a church family. It's a good benchmark to hold our church to, to any church to. Many churches may say we love Jesus and we want more of Christ, but to that you will always want to ask, well, is the word of Christ alive and active and dwelling within that church family? One Christmas um, a number of years ago, Jen and I were invited um, in Edinburgh to go to a, a watch night service with a friend um, at another church. And we were sharing Christmas with them and we, and we willingly obliged. And, and the room uh, in this church was packed uh, the, the main hall. It was heaving. It was hard to imagine anything packed these days that we live in, but, but it was, and, and the atmosphere was warm, it was Christmassy, it was somewhat raucous, the, the carols were sung with gusto, the organist was proper going some, and then the, uh, it came time for the talk, uh, and we sort of clicked over into midnight, and the, the minister solemnly opened the Bible, read a lesson uh, from the Christmas narrative from Luke, closed the Bible, and he started his message, and it was an absolute tub-thumper of a talk. It was, frankly, hilarious. It was genuinely the funniest talk I had ever heard for quite a long time. Imagine a Scottish Michael McIntyre, if you will, in a pulpit, and he was hammering out hysterical yarn after hysterical yarn about the children's nativity play going awry and the turkey burning on Christmas morning and other such hilarious Christmas anecdotes. And after about five minutes of this, I realized that this is all he was going to say. He wasn't going to mention the Bible, and he didn't. In a 20-minute in a rambling but brilliant comedic showcase with a packed church hall full to the gunnels of people hanging on to his every word, he did not mention the Bible or the word Jesus once. And at the end, my friend, who was as shocked as I was, went up and spoke to the minister himself and queried whether he'd missed a trick by not talking about Jesus with all those people there. And the response was quite sad. He said, not at all. You saw how the people responded tonight. They'll be keen to come back to church in the future. It's all about getting them in through those doors. And he'd want to say to that minister, get them in listening to what? For what purpose? The word of Christ did not dwell richly in that congregation, and it was desperately sad Some of the words of Christ were read for five minutes, but it wasn't alive. That's what dwelling means, doesn't it? It means to actively live and breathe and and be in the neighborhood, living within community. And what does it look like when the word of Christ is doing that, dwelling richly among you? Well, Paul says that the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word of Christ, the word of truth, the word of God, the word that brings grace and peace to lost souls needs to be taught. And through it, it needs to be charging us as we fight for and with each other in community. And here's where the rubber hits the road. Lest we should point at other churches, as I've just done, and stand aghast, there is absolutely no room for glee as we look upon ourselves. We do not stand six feet above contradiction, not at all. The very first thing that we will be tempted to lose as a church is the word of Christ if we're not really careful. The word of Christ is uncomfortable. It grates against us as we sin. It doesn't leave us static. It keeps us pushing us forward. It divides souls and calls people to abandon lives and deeply held habits and identifications and lifestyles. It doesn't resonate well with culture. It is offensive to those who are perishing, and it constantly disciplines the believer. That's why Paul uses the word admonishing here. It's not a comfortable thing. It's a challenging thing. But it is a beautiful thing. As we've seen, the word of Christ is still what it is in Colossians, the word that brings life, the word that takes us to this future glory, the word that cements us in the Christ of the cosmos and the Christ of the cross. Are we a church where the word of Christ dwells in us, between us, among us, richly? Are we a church where corporately and individually you ask of the leaders and the minister constantly, are they, is he letting the word of Christ Christ dwell in us? That needs to be a weekly question you ask, a termly question, an annual appraisal, if you like it, a generational one. Are our leaders always preaching the word of Christ? It wouldn't take too much for any one of us to begin to ease up when the going gets tough. And that's what this image of dwelling conjures up, being infused with the word of Christ. The word of Christ should fill everything we do. We can't get away from Those words, dwelling richly, that means it's not merely that the Bible is taught soundly from the pulpit every Sunday. We could fall into that trap of having the Bible taught soundly every Sunday and yet still not having the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It needs to permeate every single one of us. The word of Christ dwelling in us richly means that it is itself actively lived out between us and every moment of our relationships with each other as we dwell with each other richly saturated in the word of Christ, richly. Again, that's the language of Colossians, isn't it? Rich, fullness, uh, abundance, depth, reach. And what does all that look like? Well, basically, in our living out of the first command of these verses, in letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, are we doing that, fueled by the word of Christ dwelling in us richly? As we teach and admonish one another... That means, is our service to each other motivated by the word of God or motivated by how good I look? In looking after each other, in our encouragement of each other, are we readily speaking the words of Christ to each other such that the word of Christ is the point of my activity, not, not, my, not myself? Are we a people who at the end of the service or a small group Rather than talking about the weather or coronavirus or lunch, as fine as those things are, are we ready to engage in conversation about what was preached? And we have people who, incredible as it may sound, are actually quite embarrassed by talking even to my closest Christian friends about Jesus. Do we readily ask each other how our walk with the Lord Jesus is really going? Or is that really embarrassing? Are we unafraid to talk about Jesus at the dinner table with our children, our spouses? I feel this sometimes. I've often been in conversations where I've wanted to say, you know what, why don't we just pray about this thing right now? Or, I'm sorry, do do you mind if we just open up the Bible? I was reading something this morning that that encouraged me and I I think it might help you. And I've often bailed out. I can sometimes feel the prickly heat of, I don't know what it is, shame. I'm a minister even with people for whom it was the most natural thing in the world, my family, my Christian friends. At those moments, the word of Christ isn't dwelling in me richly. No matter how well things are preached on a Sunday or how faithful my exegesis is. For us as individuals and as a church family, is Jesus relegated to the church hall on a Sunday morning? He might be well-taught and we're all encouraged, but do we just leave him there? You might even serve well and rightly and love each other well, but in the right moments of deepening friendships and relationships in the church family, are we ready to speak the word of Christ to each other? Also, are we unafraid to challenge each other? That's what admonish means. This is really difficult. This doesn't mean we challenge each other self-righteously, but are we unafraid to say the difficult things to each other in love with thankfulness, verse 17? And in deep, enduring relationship where things might need to be said, are we people who are humble enough to be admonished, challenged in our daily walk with the Lord, submitting to Christ's words in our hearts that comes through a close, believing friend's lips? This is really hard. But if the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly as a church family, we would seek to do and be those things. That doesn't mean we start accusing each other of wrongs done to us. That, that's, that's the opposite of letting the peace of God rule in our hearts. It doesn't give us license to use the Bible for open season and in, in, in opening all the, the, the wounds between us. That's absolutely not what is going on. It means when you're worried about your friend and their walk with the Lord, do you have the relationship and the humility and the Bible-infused hearts that gets you on your knees before them metaphorically and says what might need to be said as you examine your own heart with that person in full openness before the Lord? Isn't that what Colossians has been teaching us? That kind of attitude, chapter 3, verse 12, put on compassionate hearts and kindness, put on meekness and humility, And dare I say, as a church plant, and we're still a small church plant, we've barely got out of our first year, this is really important. It is not good enough that we just come and listen to a good sermon or a bad sermon on a Sunday morning or open the Bibles together. It's just not good enough. We have to be preaching this and teaching this to each other all the time, living out the gospel in our everyday experiences with each other. It's really important Otherwise, we'll fall into the trap of thinking that we're safe. And suddenly, we're nowhere near the Bible. You see why these commands of letting the peace of God rule and the word of Christ dwell are right at the end of this big argument. Everything said beforehand is all tied up into these deep foundational truths of basic real-life heaven-on-earth Christianity. Without them, the rest of the letter stands slightly empty. These things are everything as we live in Christ who is everything. Letting the peace of God rule and the word of Christ dwell. These are everything a person whose life is Christ and in Christ would only ever want to seek and live and follow and own in this glorious new heaven on earth community that we are now allowed to live in with each other. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, the word of Christ dwell richly. But there is one more command in these verses. It comes in verse 17, and this is where we'll finish. Thirdly and finally, do everything, therefore, in the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving. Whatever you do, says Paul, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, as wonderful as this corporate Christian living is, and as powerful an antidote as it is to these spiritual salesmen, these false spiritual teachers that we met at the end of chapter two, corporate Christian living is not the whole show. Wonderfully, uh, our Christian spirituality doesn't need to remain within these four walls or even between each other, centred merely in each other in the church family. You see, What these spiritual salesmen are selling is inherently institutionalizing, for want of a better word. It is inherently restrictive for people and things. It might even show some kind of close community, but it is very restrictive. It kind of has to be, if you think about it. Remember back in chapter two what these salesmen are selling high church religiosity or special baptisms and ceremonies, uh, prescriptive rites and rules of passage and, and feasts and festivals, those noon uh, feasts and Sabbath days. Well, all of those things require buy in to a particular place or a building or a setup or a sect or a group, don't they? They all require a particular allegiance to an earthly body, whether this is a particular church building or that church's distinctive teaching or this special meeting where those certain experiences can be found. But Paul says that that's not the case. He says, in everything, in every part of your life, do it all in the name of Jesus. Exhibit this kind of living in every single area of your life, not just on a Sunday. Now, I'm not doing away with the, the specialness of meeting together on a Sunday morning. That's why we spent weeks as a leadership team trying, trying to write up how we could meet on a Sunday morning, especially in the midst of what we're going through, because it is a truly spiritually wonderful thing to be doing, actually attending and meeting church together. We lose something significant when we can't. It's also why I encourage us in the weekly email this week to turn up to prayer meetings. It's wonderful when we do. It's a means of grace. We become more dependent on the Lord Jesus, more in love with each other. Our roots are are planted deeper in him when we meet. It's all very important. But if those meetings are my sum total of my Christian life, if that is what I'm living for, if I'm living for Sunday, or or I'm living to to see people, if those things are the things that, that, that sort of functionally save me, Well, it's all woefully deficient. You see, Paul wants us to see in verse 17 that there is so much more than that, so much more than the one really wonderful meeting, so much more than the stuff that we set aside or our sacred times in the week. For this Christian living, in Christ's experience, living in him affects the whole of your life. And whereas we saw that a few weeks ago, that that means in terms of your past, your present, and your future being, well, here we see that it also affects both the sacred and the secular parts of your life. For there is no sacred-secular divide in Christian living. How I exhibit on a Sunday is exactly how I should exhibit myself on a Monday morning. It's not as if Sunday is the high point and Monday is the low point. That's not at all. High-octane Christianity, if you like, starts on Monday morning as much as it does on a Sunday. At your desk, in your office, at your kitchen table with the kids, in, in your lectures online, every part of your life, whatever it is you do should all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, there's another Colossian sense of completeness to that command, isn't it? Whatever you do, in the fullness of everything that you do, the Christian life spilling out into every single realm of your experience. That's what we'll be looking at next week in our final instalment of this letter as Callum reminds us of what these everyday, whatever-you-do realms of life are, being a dad. Being a mum, being a good child, being an obedient worker, being a benevolent boss. These are the whatever-you-do areas of life, aren't they? As a doctor, for those of you who are doctors, you don't doctor on a Monday to Friday or, or when you're at the hospital and then you pick up Christ on Sunday. Not at all. You doctor as someone who is in Christ, doing your job in the name of the Lord Jesus, in whom you have everything, the, the ruler of the cosmos. Can you see it makes your job totally different? How do you doctor or teach or project manage or administrate or study or parent in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father? Well, it means that you become the best doctor, Doctor, stroke teacher, stroke project manager, stroke administrator, stroke parent, etc. You can be. For the sake of Jesus, you're doing it for Him. Pleasing to the Father, that's what we saw earlier. Living in a manner worthy of Him. I want to work for Jesus, not necessarily just for my boss. How do you study as a student on campus in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father? How do you parent your children on a Monday in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father? This way of living flavors everything I do. And as we think on these areas of life, many of which have been taken away from us temporarily or altered heavily from what we knew them to be as we exist in this unusual, unhappy, seemingly never-ending age of lockdown and isolation. Mm-hmm. Can you see how much more important it is in this kind of lifestyle that we're living in now, that this everyday life of living for Jesus is taught and lived. Just because we can't always meet at church together doesn't mean I don't actively seek to live for Christ in everything that I do, giving thanks to him in whatever it is I am doing when I'm around church people. Just because we can't readily see our friends doesn't mean I should not be actively seeking the peace of Christ ruling in my heart as I think about them and pray for them in whatever it is I am doing. Just because I'm not in the office on a Monday morning doesn't mean I can't serve my colleagues well. Just because I'm not around many other people doesn't mean I shouldn't be seeking how to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly in whatever it is I am doing and with whoever may be around me at the time. And even when we are banned from singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs out loud to each other for good reason. And this is one of the most difficult outcomes of this virus in terms of church community, Obviously, death is the worst outcome of what is going on, and we do these things well and rightly, but it is difficult for us in terms of church community. We are a singing people. We are tasked with singing to each other. It's something I wrestle with more than anything else, because we're commanded to sing with. it. I find it really hard. I find it really hard not to sing the words that we're singing, because they mean so much to us. It's how we're taught and admonished. It's the way that we are living out the gospel in our community experience. But even when that is lost to us, what truths of the Bible, in thankfulness to God the Father, in the name of Jesus, are we singing to each other via texts, in our phone conversations, in our emails, in our chats, on our walks, in our meeting up in gardens and parks? Whatever we are doing, And wherever we are, and whatever is going on around us, we do everything. Everything being the fullness of chapter 3, as we let the peace of Christ rule and the word of Christ dwell, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And that's where we close today. The last word that Paul has in this part of his argument in outflanking the spiritual salesman and undoing the desire to go and look for heaven elsewhere is thankfulness. Thankfulness to God the Father in Christ. If we are thankful, what we do and who we are and how we see the situations around us radically change. Our perception of them radically changes. As we think on where we are as a society in 2020, the year to rock all years heading into a winter that none of us are particularly looking forward to into a christmas that none of us expected looking upon a political climate that fills us with dread sometimes isolated and locked down facing a period of deep uncertainty that hasn't been experienced in these ways for many generations how do we as a church get through it how do we as christians live through it well we do so in everything being thankful to God the Father, the acts and attributes of whom are shown through Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. We do so giving thanks to him who is the firstborn of creation, the ruler of the cosmos and the Christ of the cross. We do so giving thanks to the Father for the Christ who is all and is in all, for the Christ who makes creation sing, if you remember, who is in control of this pandemic, who feels the suffering of his body, the church and the world. We do so giving thanks to God for the Christ who has radically done away with our pasts, radically changed our presence, and radically altered our futures. We do so giving thanks to the Father in Jesus, the Christ who suffered and died, nailing our shame and sin to his cross such that we may have eternal peace with the living God of eternity for an eternity. That is what thinking on Jesus and the things that are above feel like, giving thanks to God for him and making that permeate every single part of my life. Well, let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you so very much for your gospel. Thank you for the word of truth. Thank you for the, for the gospel that transforms us and shows us the grace of the Lord Jesus Thank you for uh, your son. Thank you for him. Thank you for what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, please, please help us to, to live out these commands well as we find ourselves in Christ, as we find ourselves infused by Christ's word and ruled by Christ's peace. May we love each other really well. May we learn how to bear with each other in love. May we, word, may we learn um, in, in new and different ways under the situations that we find ourselves in to sing to each other psalms, hymns and spiritual songs of Christ's words that um, inspire us and urge us and, and challenge us and encourage us. Father God, may we exist well as a church community Um, and and, and may we encourage others in the gospel we pray. Father God, may it be very much, even as it is hard to be seen in these times and in the times that we live in, being isolated and and stuck indoors, please may what we do in, in every single thing that we do radiate Christ such that people may want to, to, to know more about him, that he becomes noticeable in the way we conduct ourselves and live out this wonderful life that you have called us to live. Father God, keep us together as a church family, we pray. Lord, keep us loving each other, keep us persevering in the Lord Jesus. Lord, when things get really tough, help us to cling on to what we know to be true, that Christ is everything, that he is in everything, and that he has everything under his control. Lord, may that warm our hearts this morning, and may we encourage each other as we go from here, living out um, the the high experience of Christian life um, tomorrow morning and for the rest of the week, we pray in your strong name, giving thanks to you, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen.